Episode 5. So today, Byron Lopez and myself will be discussing mutual aid versus charity in the context of modern day Greece. Also, I have a gripe. I watched a documentary on Netflix and it got my juices going. So I'm a little edgy. So my name is Brandon Peyton Curio. Let's start. Byron, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you? I, I, I can't be any better. Awesome. So today we are discussing the topic of mutual aid versus charity, but using the Greek model as an example. Um, so the, the, the Greek anarchist specifically. The Greek anarchist model. Exactly. So what is going on in... Athens or in Greece in general? Well, you know, in, in recent years, there's been uh, the Middle East has been a total clusterfuck of uh, multiple imperialisms, and many people have fled the region uh, due to violence, um, famine, uh, disease, um, all that terrible stuff that comes with war. Um, and they have been going into Turkey um, and then uh, and kind of like through the Mediterranean countries. And one of the bi- one of the main stopping points is Greece because it's right there in the Mediterranean. It's a uh, hop, skip, and a stone throw away. And uh, something that uh, the Greeks have noticed is that the government has totally failed in actually treating these, like treating the uh, Middle Eastern refugees as even basic human beings. Um, I think as of right now, there is about sixty thousand or something above 60,000 people, uh, like Middle Eastern refugees, uh, crammed into these small little internment camps on the like outer islands of Greece um, and being treated like in horrible conditions under constant arson attacks from the local Golden Dawn neo-Nazi party, which is third in parliament right now in, th- in terms of size, um, constant police attack. Um, by the way, the police who, by 50 percent, uh, support Golden Dawn, um, fa- uh, you know, like lack of food, lack of health care, um, just kind of have all their autonomy taken away from them. Um, so the Greek uh, anarchists specifically kind of saw this and, you know, knew like they had to do something. So they decided to squat a few buildings in Athens um, and then throughout the country and, and their main form of mutual aid is housing like you know actual humane housing uh for these refugees i think as of right now there's uh, over 250 uh like social centers that they're calling them uh throughout the country like housing i think uh a bit over 3000 refugees okay so when it comes to this housing situation how are the migrants involved in the process themselves or are they uh, because, uh, uh, yes, the, the, the migrants are treated as equals to the organizers themselves. They are considered organizers just as much as the Greek anarchists are. Because in the end of the day, um, one of the big things about mutual aid is that 
uh, everyone, every participant um, is an equal and have has just as much responsibility uh, between each other. So uh, the refugees who decide to come into and like live in these shelters um, ha- are kind of also not just getting uh, like the food and the housing, but are also just as much responsible of cooking the food, of talking amongst one another to make decisions um, and to maintain the housing. So um, contrary to what is, you know, like Section 8 housing here in California, where the government kind of, after a long time of waiting on a list, the government gives you like essentially very cheap housing. Uh, but there's all these rules and stipulations that are imposed on you and you don't really have a choice in. Um, and uh, if you break into those rules or you kind of want to change something, like you're screwed. You're kicked out of the housing. While in Greece, uh, you work with the Greek anarchists who are living with you, by the way. Um, this is very much a you know live with the people you are helping um, type of situation. You make decisions with them. You cook with them. You you know sleep in the same housing as them. You live your life with these people as not just uh, comrades, but as friends. You know, like you help educate. You educate the children together. Um, you know, you settle disputes together. Um, everything is done uh, not as a giver and receiver, but as equals. And that's really the the main focus that these Greek uh, that the Greek anarchists have on like the way to treat refugees okay so let's juxtapose this model to what is the typical NGO model when it comes to housing what are some of the similarities and what is different um so the only similarity is that at the end of the day someone's getting housing but uh the, the main crux, uh, the main difference is that the NGO is a superior is, super, is ultimately in uh, superior to you in power, um, and the fact that they ultimately control the housing. So there's you know it, you have to file a bunch of paperwork. You have to give all this like uh, evidence. You have to um, do a billion things. You have to follow all the rules. You don't get to decide alongside them what the rules are. Uh, you just have to follow them or else you are kicked out and screwed um, and left to die. Um, while the Greek anarchists, um, again, like I said before, they treat you as equals. They do not consider you beneath them. They consider you um, a person just like them who is also who is has the right to make decisions but also the responsibility to follow through on those decisions. Interesting. Okay. So the migrants are more, much more empowered in this system. So yes. what do you have to say when people talk about these mutual aid programs and they call them charity? Um, it, I, I would say to them is that um, this isn't charity in any way, shape, or form, mainly uh, because of two things. In that one – this is inherently political. Charity is almost always uh, kind of non-political. I mean, it is an inherently political act. Um, all things are, but it's different in that uh, the NGOs and the government does it tries to actively avoid um, talking about politics in it, or you know, even kind of uh, nonchalantly including it in anything. Another difference is that you 
aren't just giving it to like ask you aren't just like asking for paperwork um and then just giving it to them and just telling them goodbye never talk to me ever again unless you need this thing again um while they're there you ask them you know what are issues that you have in your community um how are there any ways that we can help you um help yourself and organize your community um to tackle these issues um that's so like So, you know, mutual aid is not charity. It's a fundamentally different thing. It treats the people um, who are involved radically different than charity. How can mutual aid empower these migrants and how how has it empowered these migrants that are in the situation in Greece? You know, in, in the situation for all migrants, not just from the Middle East, but for everywhere throughout time, is that these are people torn away from their homes uh, very violently through war, through famine, economic or uh, you know ecological devastation. Um, and that really takes away your autonomy. Feeling like you know it's, it's a really big source of alienation and just being desperate and having no one to talk to, having no one to go to, um, not even having someone to even uh, just to listen to your problems. Uh, is incredibly alienating. It's incredibly depowering. So when you see uh, these social centers in, in in Athens and in other Greek cities, um, you know there are people inside who go up and talk to you not as someone as as if you're beneath them, but as your equal, as someone who's not just willing to listen, but willing to help you uh, get your life back together, help you find your family, help you. Uh, find a place to stay, help you get some power, some, you know, some autonomy back into your life. And that's an incredibly big thing, especially when you have, you know, local neo-Nazis or police actively treating you like garbage wherever you go. You know, it's, it's, it's a massive help and it just, and it really brings back some level of humanity uh, to, to the way you see yourself. Now, you mentioned the Nazis again. Um, haven't they been throwing like smoke bombs at these facilities and abusing some of these migrants along the process, in this, particularly in Athens? Uh, yes. Uh, the Golden Dawn Party, who I've mentioned before, they're uh, the, large, like the third largest party in the whole of Greece right now. Uh, most of the police are supporters of them. They actively try to beat, kill... Uh, even burn down the pro- like the personal property of migrants, but not just them. The police also do this. The police have been known to come in and uh, on the behalf of the property owners that these anarchists are squatting in, uh, clear out uh, certain squats uh, because the property owner wants their property back, even though they haven't been using them for years. Um, uh, but also, that's just them. But also, uh, the Greek Communist Party, the KKE, has. That, you know, it's been do- well documented before that they, uh, due to dirty deal with capital in the state, and also because of the ideological differences with anarchists, routinely creates uh, small, like uh, small armed mobs to go in and beat up Greek anarchists and migrants, because they're ideologically different from them, and that you know because they're not supporting the you know the Greek Communist Party, who's the only uh, party of the working class, so they go and beat up the working class. Um, you know, the Greek anarchists and the refugees have most of civil society against them, and they're still doing this because they know it's the fundamentally right thing to do. Jeepers. All that vanguardism. 
<laughs> yeah. So, overall, how do you see this situation? Do you see it turning better? Do you see it turning worse? Or is the jury still out? I would very much say the jury is still out. I mean, the economic situation in Greece is just getting worse and worse. The, the migration has, for the most part, stopped, mainly because uh, the EU essentially paid Turk like bribed Turkey into not letting um, any more refugees through. But, you know, with Erdogan and just how things are going with Turkey politically, we don't know how long that'll last. Um, but things are getting bad in, in Greece. Uh, the Golden Dawn is getting more and more support, but so are the anarchists. Uh, the, so are like the left wing in general. Um, but we don't really know how things are going to go. It's most likely it's going to get worse before it ever gets better, if it even does get better. Wow. Well... I'm pretty sure this will be a subject matter that we will revisit soon and often. Oh, yes. So, Byron, thank you for your time. Thank you. podcast we don't shy away from any type of controversy and recently i was just bored around the house watching netflix that's what i do when i'm bored i drink and watch netflix but anyway um i saw this documentary called the rachel divide and it was about um controversial figure rachel dolazar so first i was like i don't think i want to watch this shit But then I realized I had nothing better to do, so I watched it. And before I get into my gripe, because what's coming up next is my gripe about the documentary, I just want to preface this by saying I'm not trying to purposely start shit or be provocative, and I come from a place of healing I want to bring people together and unite people. Um, So that always colors my perspective on how I feel. I will never, I will call people out who deserve to be called out for doing despicable behavior. However, I will stand up for those who may be abused and may have trauma and we might not understand them. So, um, shit, here it is. My gripe. Uh, uh, Gotta cry! So, hey, Byron. Yo. I have a gripe for you today. Yes, give it to me. All right. (laughs) So, I was on Netflix as I usually am, you know, in my later hours of the evening. 
And I saw that Netflix produced a documentary about Rachel Dolezal. Do you remember her? Uh, she was that uh, white woman trying to pass as a black one, right? Yeah, she was. She worked in Africana Studies at, um, I think, Eastern Washington University. And she was the leader of the local NAACP in Spokane, Washington. But then she was outed as being white. And she doubled down on being black. Yeah, I, I remember following that. That was a that was a weird trip for me personally. <laughs> so here's my gripe, because honestly, I I'm pretty I think I'm pretty liberal on people's choice of identity. You know, you can be whoever the hell you want to be, long as you are actually if you're living that path, live that path to the most truest that you can. And watching this documentary, I see this woman who's struggled with trauma from her family. And Mm -hmm. um, she helped raise her adoptive siblings Mm -hmm. who were black. And through that process, found a new identity as a black woman. And actually doing a lot of pretty good local anti-racism work. Um, in Spokane, Washington area. So I see that, but the counter arguments for her to like, wow, you're just really out of line because you're white. I feel as though that is very problematic. Yeah, I I can totally see why. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, if race is a social construct in I then her being able to kind of be fluid on that and how she identifies is correct in that thinking process. I understand that I myself who am I'm born with dark skin. I consider myself Afro-Latino, but I can tell you most people when they see me they just think look at me as black. They don't see the Latino part, they don't see Family in Mexico, they don't see the piñatas, they don't see the quinceañeras I went to, they don't see me being baptized in Ciudad Juarez, they just see me as a black man. And I'm slightly upset with other POCs that don't aren't like, okay, I don't get what you're trying to do. Thank you for trying to fight for our cause. We're also really fucking hurt. We don't know how to navigate this whole situation because this shit is new. And no one's willing to admit that, and no one's willing to admit that this is all kind of drag in some way. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on that? Because I – correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of this shit about her is is just very emotional, highly irrational, and um, doesn't really do us any benefit as people of color. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the main crux of the of kind of like what she brought up uh, within the POC community um, was kind of the weird clash between race and ethnicity. Because I feel like because she was born, like she was adopted into a black family, um, like an African American family, like she was very much raised up. I, I could totally see her being ethnically African American because uh, ethnicity isn't about like biological characteristics; it's about culture. 
It's about language. It's about shared history. Um, and her growing up, like basically growing up in that family, I could totally see her identifying as ethnically black, like ethnically African American, I guess. Uh, but like again, like race is a social is a construct. It's not really recognized uh, by any actual by any social science. It's just kind of a weird thing that you kind of know when you see it. There's no real definition of it. Um, and of course, uh, and like racially, yeah, she's she is white. Um, so it's that weird clash between being ethnically African American, but you know, racially white. Um, and I feel like as we kind of move forward into a more multicultural society, that's going to happen more and more often. Um, you know, people, you know, maybe growing up in an Asian American household, but being, but being born to, uh, African American parents, you're going to have that weird culture clash where it's like, you look different, but like you act, uh, like an Asian American, uh, but and, and like this isn't even the first time this has kind of happened. Um, I remember in the uh, I remember this really good doc- documentary also on Netflix. Uh, Netflix, please play it. Please play us. Um, <laughs> um, called Real Engine, which is about like Native Americans and their betrayal in Hollywood. Yeah. And and there was this one actor who was you know racially white, but as he kind of, but as he kind of like took on more and more roles as a Native American. You know, playing Native American characters, but like putting on makeup, he kind of just got more and more into it until like the point where he just wholly internalized the culture, and like for all cases and purposes, like acted like a Native American would. Um, like he had, like he, you know, joined a he joined a tribe, like an actual tribe. Um, he like started. Uh, he learned an actual Native American language, which are like incredibly hard to learn. <laughs> um, like he just went full into it, and like. I could totally see him passing ethnically as Native American. He even kind of, he also like the woman we're talking about. He kind of looked the part as well, somewhat. Um, like he kind of sort of passed uh, racially. Um, so like, and and, I, and and like the same thing we're talking about now, the same kind of outrage and discussion that's happening within the POC community happened then as well, like in during the sixties and seventies. Um, it's it's like really weird how like yeah, history very much rhymes. Um, and and like I, I don't know how I feel personally because uh, I, I don't think anyone's not many people have tried passing like a Latino like, like a more like a, you know white like Spanish indigenous mixed yeah. um, Latino um, so I I don't know how I would feel personally I, I'm I'm waiting it'll come one day <laughs> it's yeah. bound to happen um, so I'm I'm very I'm 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 a little mixed uh, I'm a little more mixed than you I, I feel like. Interesting. Yeah, you know, it's and just for the point out, because somebody will come on Twitter and say, correct, it's like, well, she wasn't adopted into a black family. Her white family adopted black siblings. Oh, okay. And um, she wound up raising one of the siblings as her son. And then the other one, who was a little bit older, they have a sister relationship. So in some ways, you can even say that this documentary in her life is also questions the structure of the family as well. And what is family? That, I forgot about that dude from Real Engine. That was a, that was a good documentary. And I think he was like Italian to begin with. Yeah. So. I, I think like Southern Italian as well. Who are like who look pretty different from Northern Italians? Exactly. 
Northern Italians are, tend to, and here we are talking stereotypes, but they tend to be a little bit lighter, a little bit more. They're closer to the Swiss border where, you know, south of Naples, like Naples, like south of Rome, is darker, more olivey complexion, that sort of thing. So here's something else that in this conversation that I, I started thinking about. All the people who, let's say, for example, like Eminem, that guy never denies that he comes from two white pairs of genitals. Well, maybe, wait, one set, one pair of white genitals. I apologize. There wasn't four people. Eminem did not come from an orgy. Uh, <laughs> or he might have, but it just took two to make it happen. I was not there. But, so he came from a pair of white genitals. Never denied that. But yet, all his friends, most of his life, were black. He was immersed in hip-hop culture. He was... Um, had to be one of the best rappers that he can be, to have credibility. And he rose to all those occasions. And, you know, there was a term for people like that, which came predominantly from white people. I don't think black people came up with the term wigger. You know, but this is common, and this is going to become more common. There's going to be people where black people who love anime or you know we know in california how many latinos that love fucking morrissey i love morrissey because he's fucking amazing and i get it um but you know he's as english as they come so my question is where is the community for those people if we had to be in such culturally rigid um, parameters, we had to exist in this world where this is the box you were born into. And if you're outside of that box, you're a fucking weirdo. Yeah, I can, I can, yeah, that, that like Eminem very much is like a weird thing. Cause like, I, I kind of remember when I was younger, as he was kind of getting bigger and bigger, um, like people, would always wonder, like, why is there a white guy like being like this huge rapper? Like, what what the hell's happening? Like, th- this doesn't seem normal. Um, and like in a weird way, like uh, Eminem very much broke into the scene because he had to. Be, yeah, you're right. He had to be like fucking amazing in order to be accepted, in order just to even be tolerated. Um, and uh, kind of as a pair of this, like within the punk community, um, like it's predom- it was predominantly white. Still, very much is. Um, and if you were a person of color, like in Bad Brains or um, kind of No Effects, who was like predominantly like Jewish um, and had Latino, um, like you had to work your ass off to just be allowed in because you know, because um, while like most like most people in that in in these fields are usually fairly not you know they they wouldn't consider themselves racist. They're not like propagating. Uh, white supremacist ideas or like or like any racial supremacist ideas like they're not like I, I feel like most in rap like most african-americans in rap aren't like new black panthers or anything yeah they're not like <laughs> racial separatists um like they're they're still very much the idea like it it's like racism is so ingrained that like even poc are capable of racism 
like even POC are capable of like encloistering themselves in very small pockets where they don't allow anyone like, where they kind of resist any intrusion into. And I can see why. I mean, uh, like jazz was wholeheartedly stolen by white people to create rock and roll, uh, even though rock and roll itself was like created by an African-American woman. Uh, like there, there is, I can totally see why there may be a little pushback to, you know, non-POC people, uh, like non-POC, like entering into POC areas of music and culture. Um, you know, like here in, here and where I live, we have a Cinco de Mayo and like occasion and like, and there was like this whole big thing about like a bunch of white people making a Cinco, uh, no, no, Dia de los Muertos altars, mm-hmm. uh, you know, where we're like, we build a shrine to our dead relatives, um, like a bunch of. You know, uh, a bunch of like white people who like not even like li- like white Latinos, just plain like Anglo Americans yeah. uh, wanted to do one, and there was like this whole real big debate in the community about like whether or not this is like okay or whether or not we should allow them in. And I, and then at the end of the day, we're like, yeah, fuck it, let, like let them do it uh, because because like you know, at the end of the day, it's still very much a Latino culture thing. Mm-hmm. It, it's so ingrained in like not just the Latino community, but like in the American, like hell, the global community in general, that it is Latino, that it's, it would take a lot of work, like a lot of intentional uh, co-optation to like have it stolen by like white people. And I feel like for rap, it would be the same personally. So I, I, I could kind of see why, but like, yeah, if, when it comes to Eminem, I was like, I ended up coming to the conclusion that yeah, Eminem, yeah, fuck it. Let, let there be a white rapper. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Yeah, you know, and let's be honest. It will that institution that could whitewash hip hop or Dia de los Muertos is capitalism, and it have to be that the capitalists see, oh shit, we can make uh, even more money off of just having all of these rappers white. So let's just keep signing white rappers and just put it out there, and almost to the point where you just flood the marketplace. Of, well, you can buy black rappers. That's cool. But look at all of these white rappers all over the radio. And that's the only way I can see subverting that cultural, I guess, hegemony, for lack of a better word. And this was in um, Orange County, where... Yeah. Yeah, I I had mixed feelings about that. Well, you know what, Byron? I think you calmed me down. Because I was pissed. I was pissed and I was full of a lot of emotions. I'm glad we were able to work this out. Oh, yeah. Real real struggle session hours. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Well, damn. That's our show for today. Please consider supporting us at patreon.com backslash movement of color. That's how we're able to keep... These things going, have nice sound quality, sexy songs, you know, provide quality content for you folks. So you really help us out a lot. Also, keep the conversation going with us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is movement underscore color. My name is Brandon Payton Carrillo. I had a blast today. Take care and adios.